the ones that I can see, and I hope to see more of you later on. We are here because there was once a time that we were in darkness, and we had kind of succumbed to the evil that was in our lives. We said, you know what? That's going to be how we live. And God changed something within us. We know that there is a good God that is out there, and that is why we are here today. This is an amazing thing that we want to be able to convey to you, want to convey to the rest of the world. And unfortunately, there are people that are still out there who have no idea that there is a good God that exists. And our job is to be able to explain that to them, to show them more than explain through the lives that we have. And this is not a new concept. We've been able to see this in Scripture, in God's Word, for thousands of years before we even got here. In fact, there's one uh, in the book of Habakkuk. He was a prophet in the Old, Old Testament. And he says something like this. He's yelling out to God. He's complaining. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry. But you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch, match all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. What a complaint. And it's not a complaint that we aren't unfamiliar with right now. We hear this stuff around us right now. Maybe you are experiencing that. I want to just give you, this is an encouragement today. There is a good God alive and working in our lives. Yeah, that's why we're here. And if you still haven't experienced that, we hope that you will today. Would you guys watch this video? We are all well aware of the suffering and evil in the world. Horrific suffering. Unspeakable evil. How then can anyone believe in the existence of an all-loving, all-powerful God? And if God does exist, why would anyone want to worship Him? Epicurus framed the logical problem of suffering and evil like this. If God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he's not all-powerful. 
If he is able to prevent evil, but not willing, he is not good. But if he is both willing and able, how can evil exist? And if he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? In other words, it's logically impossible for God and suffering to both exist. But we know full well that suffering exists. Therefore, God does not. Is this a good argument? Let's look at it more closely. Are these two statements logically inconsistent? No. Here is an example of two logical inconsistent statements. David can't be both married and a bachelor. But there is no explicit contradiction between these two statements. So there must be hidden assumptions behind this argument that would bring out the alleged contradiction. Here they are. If God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants. And if God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. So, if an all-powerful, all-loving God exists, it follows that suffering does not exist. Since suffering obviously does exist, the atheist concludes that God must not exist. But are the atheist's two hidden assumptions necessarily true? Consider the first assumption. Can God create any world he wants? What if he wants a world populated by people who have free will? It's logically impossible for God to force someone to freely choose to do good. Forcing free choices is like making a square circle. It's not logically possible. It's not that God lacks the power to perform the task. It's that the supposed task itself is just nonsense. So, it may not be feasible to create a world populated by people who always freely choose to do what is morally good. So the first assumption is not necessarily true. Therefore, the argument fails. And what about the second assumption? Is it necessarily true that God would prefer a world without suffering? How could we possibly know this? We all know of cases where we permit suffering in order to bring about a greater good. If it's even possible that God allows suffering in order to achieve a greater good, then we cannot say this assumption is necessarily true. For the logical problem of suffering to succeed, the atheist would have to show that it's logically impossible that free will exists and that it's logically impossible that God has good reasons for permitting suffering. This burden of proof is too heavy to bear. It's quite possible that God and suffering both exist. This is why philosophers, even atheist philosophers, have given up on the logical problem of evil. We can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. Some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of a theistic god. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. It's now acknowledged on almost all sides that the logical argument is bankrupt. But this is hardly the end of the discussion. We still need to explore the probability version of the problem of evil.
Let's pray together. Father, it's a gift that you've given to us to call us into your presence. We pray that we will recognize that you're here, and we pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Glad you guys are here. I hope you will be. So, if there really is a God, why doesn't he do something about all the suffering and evil in the world, right? Ever hear that one? Or you say your God is powerful, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, so why does he allow all the horrible stuff that I read about every day in the papers, right? Why does he allow such horrible stuff to happen to me, to my kids? You've heard that one too, right? Maybe you've thought it from time to time. In fact, it's probably the biggest problem that a lot of people have with God. As Steve mentioned earlier, it's even in the Bible, although with a twist. Usually in the Scripture, when they're struggling with the problem of evil, it's why doesn't God protect His own? Why didn't He protect His kids, you know, believers like us? And He read you from Habakkuk, how long must I call for help? But you don't listen, God. How many times do I have to call out, cry out to you, God, and you're not there? Why do you have to make me look at injustice? Why do you let me tolerate wrongdoing? It's all over the place. Another Old Testament prophet put it like this. He says, why are you like someone taken by surprise, God? You're supposed to see everything. You're supposed to know everything, right, God? You're like a soldier, powerless to help. Surely you're with us. Don't abandon us. You ever wonder why Jesus' followers get COVID just like they do? Cancer, heart disease, diabetes, whatever, pretty much same stats. We don't get a break from that stuff because we acknowledge God as God. Somewhere around 1979 or 80, I forget exactly when, I was in seminary down in Tennessee. And most of my friends were doing just like I was doing. Preaching, if we could, small church somewhere maybe, working at a job, whatever we could to get through school, wife, kid or two, poor. But we really didn't know it and really didn't care. One of my seminary friends was just like that, small church, wife, kid, as I remember. And he had a job as a security guard in order to pay his bills. Like the rest of us, he felt called by God to serve God as pastor, and he was training to be as good at it as he could be. One evening, he was in the security guard booth at a factory that was on strike. One of the guys on strike drove up, drunk, pulled out a shotgun, and blew away my friend. His wife, a widow now, his kid, fatherless, his church, devastated. Some would say, if there's a God, why does he allow something like that to happen? He was a fine, God-honoring young man. Others would say, must have been God's will, right? Apparently, God needed him upstairs more than his wife, his kids, his church, and his friends did. Must have been his time, after all. Isn't there a reason for everything? Apparently, God needed another flower in his garden, another angel in his choir. Ever hear that nonsense? At his memorial service in the seminary chapel, I'll never forget the words of Fred Thompson. He was the president of the seminary at the time, quite a theologian. And he said this, don't you dare call what happened God's will. 
Don't you dare blame this on God. That is nearly blasphemy. God doesn't will evil, and God never causes evil. What happened was a desecration of the will of God. So which was it? Which is it? For some, evil and suffering are an evidence that there cannot be a God. For others, God must have a reason. God has a reason for everything, right? Reasons we can't fathom yet. And for others, God isn't responsible for the evil in this world. He never wills evil. He never causes evil. So which is it? Now we're in a little series we're calling God Cancelled. We're laying out, I hope, or strong evidences that there really is a God and that He entered our world as Jesus. And what I'm going to tackle this morning is one of the biggest questions that people raise. One of the reasons they give for not believing in God. I'm going to flip it around. What most people think is a problem for those who believe in God is really a very, very strong evidence that there must be a God. You'll see. So here it is. What do you think? Here's what maybe you think sometimes. I can't believe in a God who would permit so much suffering and evil in the world, right? I can't, can't believe in a God who would allow bad people to win so often. If there is a God, I don't like Him. I don't trust Him. It's an old, old argument. As you saw in the video, it was made even by people with no connection to the Bible. 300 years before Jesus, a famous Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus. You might know the word Epicurean in English. It comes right out of his name. Here is Epicurus' famous trilemma. Here's how he put it. He says, if God is unable to prevent evil, he's not all-powerful, right? If God is not willing to prevent evil, he's not all good. But if God is both willing and able, why does evil exist if there is a God? So Epicurus concluded either there's no God at all or he just doesn't matter. A couple thousand years later, another very famous philosopher by the name of David Hume made exactly the same case 250 years ago. Here's what he said. Is God willing and able? Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent, an impotent God. If God is able to prevent evil but not willing, then he is malevolent. He is evil, right? If he's both able and willing to prevent evil, then where in the heck does evil come from if there is a God? Because it would stand to reason, right, that an omnibenevolent God, a God who's all good, would want to eliminate evil. An omnipotent God, a God who's all powerful, would certainly be able to eliminate evil, and yet evil is still here all around us. So how could the kind of God we think he is actually exist? Because we think he's omnipotent, right? He can do anything that's doable. So he's got to be strong enough to eliminate evil. We think he's omniscient. He knows everything, knowable, which means he must know how to eliminate evil. And God is omnibenevolent, perfectly good. So he's got to hate evil. He must want to eliminate it. So where is he? What's he doing? Is he there at all? 
A few years ago, CNN published a, a blog entitled, Why I Raise My Children Without God. Got picked up by several other sites, and she lists seven, seven reasons. <laughs> Make sure I guard my fingers up. That's bad. Number one, God's a bad parent. He's a bad role model. Good parents don't allow their children to inflict harm on others. Good people don't stand by and watch horrible acts committed against innocent men, women, and children. Good people don't condone violence and abuse. But he's given us free will, you say. Well, our kids have free will, but we step in and guide them. Reason two, God's not logical, she says. If there is a good, all-knowing, all-powerful God who loves his kids, does it make sense that he would allow murders, child abuse, wars, brutal beatings, torture, millions of heinous acts to be committed throughout the history of mankind? Where is he? Three, he's not fair. If God's fair, then why are some babies born with heart defects, autism, missing limbs, conjoined to another baby? Or why is a good man beaten senseless on the street while an evil man finds great wealth taking advantage of others? And she keeps going, making her case against God. But where does she get her moral outrage? If there's no God, if there is no God, how can you call anything evil at all? I'm serious. If there's no God, how can you call anything evil at all? Tough luck, maybe. Sucks to be you, maybe. But evil? Think about it. If you call something evil, you're assuming that something is not as it should be, right? You're assuming there's some kind of a standard that is being violated. If you call someone evil, you're assuming that there's some kind of a moral code that you think others should accept, that others should live by. At least on this one, we're thinking, you don't get to make your own rules. You don't get your, right, your own right and wrong on this one. Anyone can see that, we say, with moral outrage. But what gives you the right to determine what's right and wrong for me? Who made you God if there is no God? Hmm. Who gets to determine what's evil and what's not? Who gets to make the rules for everybody else? Well, maybe we make it democratic, right? Everyone gets to vote. The majority used to think that sex outside of marriage was wrong. It was evil even. The majority today would not vote that way. So what used to be evil isn't evil anymore, right? The majority today believe, still believe that an adult having sex with children is wrong. It's evil. But believe it or not, the numbers are changing. Does that mean that someday an adult having sex with children will not be wrong? It will not be evil anymore? Or maybe whoever's the strongest, whoever's the most persuasive, they get to decide what's right and wrong for everybody else. So there's one right and wrong when Democrats are in control and a different right and wrong when Republicans are in control. How's that working out? Or maybe, maybe if there's no God, it's just every man for himself, right? I get my right and wrong, you get yours. 
But if that's so, what gives you the right to call me evil? Evil for you, maybe, but not for me. You don't get to make the rules for me. By the way, we're going to dig into that one a little bit deeper next week. Anyway, if there's no God, maybe we just play by nature's rules. Think about it. Is there any evil in nature? We've got cats at our house. Cats are about as close as I can get to call anything in nature evil. Despicable critters. Now, our cats do catch a lot of mice, lots of them, but they like to play with them, toy with them, torture them before they kill them and leave them as gifts in our garage. Are they evil or are they cats? We have cows on our little farm too. When we put out some feed, the bigger cows always push the smaller cows aside. They don't like to share. Cows are pretty much self-centered twits. Are they evil? Or are they cows? There's a den of foxes that lives down in our hay barn. They'll kill and eat our chickens if we leave them unprotected. Are they evil? Or are they foxes? We have skunks too. Never mind, skunks are evil. <laughs> if any of you guys treated your family, your friends, your enemies even the way that animals do naturally, the rest of us would call you evil. Wouldn't we? Is that fair? A couple of hundred years ago, a guy named Charles Darwin was pondering the laws of nature. Things like natural selection, survival of the fittest. Natural selection depends in part on the destruction of the weak by the strong, right? Survival of the fittest means the strongest, the smartest, the craftiest survive. And the species gets better because of it. Natural selection, survival of the fittest. It's not about good and evil, it's about nature. In fact, Darwin believed that what we call evil is merely in inherited animal passions. We do what we do because bottom line, we're just animals too, right? Acting according to nature. Do you want to know who was honest enough to admit that? A guy named Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler bought Darwin hook, line, and sinker. He believed in the survival of the fittest just because it was one of the laws of nature. So he believed he was improving the human race by eliminating inferior human beings like six million Jews and five million gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, homosexuals, blacks, Poles, those who are physically and mentally disabled, and others. Because he was building a master race. In fact, Hitler said, Christianity, you guys, are a rebellion against natural law. You are a protest against nature. He says, taken to its logical extreme, Christianity would mean the systematic cultivation of human failure. There's no God? Was he right? On what basis would you call Hitler evil if you play by the laws of nature? Here at Cap City, we believe in the value of every person, even those with disabilities, right? So at our 11 o'clock service across the hall, we're going to have a, a worship service for those with disabilities. You guys like that? You proud of that? Hitler would have been disgusted with us. 
He would have killed him. In fact, here's part of the script from one of his propaganda films. He says, in the last few decades, mankind has sinned terribly against the law of natural selection. We haven't just maintained life worthy, unworthy of life, we've allowed it to multiply. The descendants of these sick people look like this. And in his documentary, he showed pictures of people with disabilities. Hitler said, why should I not be crueler than nature? How is advancing the human race immoral? He said, Christianity is rebellion against natural law. Because we believe that every single human being is valuable. And we believe that there is a higher standard of right and wrong than natural law. A moral law set by God who will judge every single man, every single woman, every child, everywhere for all of time. Do you believe that? Bottom line, guys, here's the point. An atheist or an agnostic, anyone who lives as if there is no God, has no basis to be outraged by the evil they sense in this world. By what standard can I call anything evil without a God? Whatever offends me. So if something doesn't offend me, it's not evil, like Hitler. And if that kind of thinking doesn't offend you, you don't get it. Listen, guys, moral outrage is not an evidence that there is no God. Moral outrage is a powerful evidence that there has to be a God. You were created so that your heart is pricked by that which pricks the heart of God, unless you shut him off. But let me take it one step further. When you hear people say, if there's, if there's a God, why does he allow such evil in the world? Why couldn't you flip it around? If there is a God, why in the world would he allow you in this world? Or me? Because we always fret about someone else's evil, right? We get outraged by someone else's evil. Evil that we perceive is way worse than our own. But if you want God to get serious about eliminating the evil in this world... You're hosed. So am I. Think about it. What kind of options did God have? What could he have done? I suppose God could have created every one of us with no capacity for evil at all. If God is all-powerful and all-smart, he could have created you so that you could only do good, right? You'd always be loving, always be patient, always kind, always gentle, always good. In other words, God could have made every one of you puppets. No choice but to do the good that you were programmed to do. Or I suppose he could have created all of us with no sense of evil. No sensitivity to evil like our cats, our dogs, our cows, or our skunks. Best I can tell, they just follow their instincts. Neither good nor evil, they just are. He could have made us just like them, like the rest of the animals out there. But he didn't. He planted in you this sense of right and wrong, this sense of good and evil. Or he could have chosen to stop us somehow whenever we started doing something that was evil. My kind of God, right? 
My kind of God wouldn't permit a man to abuse a child. My kind of God wouldn't permit the strong to crush the weak. My kind of God wouldn't permit some psycho to murder the innocent. My kind of God would nip evil in the bud. Right? Really? How far would you be willing to take that? As long as it's someone else's evil that God is stopping? As long as it's not my kind of evil that God stops? Would you want him to stop at all? Anything that's evil or just the kind of evils that bother you most? Because be honest, most of us aren't bothered by the evils that we consider little, even if they're not really little. All right, God should stop sexual predators, right? Should he eliminate those of us who lust, who have affairs, who watch porn, who engage any kind of sex outside of that between a husband and a wife in the marriage bed? God should stop the rich when they steal from the poor, right? Should he eliminate those who cheat on their taxes even a little? Or who refuse to give their first part back to God as he commands? Okay, God should stop murderers. Should he stop those who murder each other on the social media? Who mock, marginalize, cancel, or those who hate? Which Jesus said is morally equivalent to murder. Should God eliminate the liars, the greedy, the gluttons, the lazy? Who simply prey on the benevolence of others? Bottom line, if you're serious about asking the question, if God is so good, God is so smart, God is so powerful, why doesn't he allow evil in the world? Why couldn't I flip it around? If God is so good and smart and powerful, why does he allow you to exist in this world of his, messing it up like you do? Hmm. Because we all sin a lot. Be ruthlessly honest. We deceive. We get self-centered. We use people. We lust, we hate, we hurt, we mock, we marginalize, we cancel. If God were to rid the world of evil, he'd have to get the, rid the world of all of you and me. Why would God allow us in this world to mess it up like we have? Let's think about this God we serve, this God we love. Why does God allow evil when he could so easily prevent it? Because he made you free. God gave you free will. He let you choose. It was an amazing risk making us free. But without the freedom to hate him, neither could we love him. Love only matters when it's freely chosen. And God values your love more than he values your obedience. It bothers a lot of people. It bothers a lot of Jesus followers. I mean, how could a puny little creature like you or me defy an omnipotent, all-powerful, eternal God? Can you really tell God no? Well, let me flip that around. Don't you think an all-powerful God is powerful enough to create a creature with the capacity, with the freedom to reject him? Do you think that's beyond his capacities? With consequences, of course. Can't have it both ways. You, but you can't give a creature freedom 
without also giving that creature the ability to choose badly, to choose evil. Just because God is all-powerful doesn't mean he can do what's impossible. That's why I always say that God can do anything that's doable. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? What a stupid question. It's impossible. God can do anything doable. Can God create a creature that is free to choose, but with no capacity to choose evil? It's impossible. God can do anything doable. When God chose to give you freedom, he gave you the capacity to choose badly, to choose evil, but also the capacity to be kind, to be patient, to be gentle, to be good, and to love. Because apparently God think it was worth the risk. And you can understand that because that's the same risk we take every time we have a kid. They could hate us. And they could love us. But the possibility of that love is worth the risk. You see, there are those who believe in God, but that God choreographs everything. Whatever happens, God made it that way. Whoever you are, whatever you do, whatever you choose, God chose that for you. Whatever happens, no matter how terrible, God has his reasons. Someday maybe we'll understand. Everything is unfolding as God dictates. In other words, this is a puppet show. And there are others of us, Jesus followers, who don't see it that way. I don't think those who wrote the Bible saw it that way. God created the angels, and apparently some of them rebelled. They chose against God. And now they work against God, messing with us, messing with our world sometimes. God created us humans, creatures that are different. We're not like the other animals, guys, programmed just to follow our instincts. God gave us a sense of a right and a wrong that they don't have. Sometimes we choose the right, even when it clashes what we want to do. We have the ability to do what's right when everything in us wants to do what is wrong. Go figure. And we have the ability to love our God or to push Him away. And God honors our choice because God values our love even more than He values our obedience. Which is why when Jesus taught us to pray, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. May thy will be done. May your will be done on earth, God. Just like it is in heaven, because sometimes it's not. Listen, guys. God's highest goal is not to get you to believe in him. That would be easy for him. But God's not going to force himself on you. So he leaves fingerprints. He gives you plenty of evidence if you want to open your eyes. But God is not going to force himself on you. And God's highest goal is not to get you to obey him. That'd be easy for him too. But to do that would require that he turn you into a puppet. God doesn't want puppets. He wants us to love him back. And love requires freedom. You see, guys, the purpose of your life, the purpose of my life, God's purpose for yours and my life is to know him and to love him back, which requires freedom, which can be used to choose badly. 
which is why there is so much evil in this world. But God is not silent and God is not passive. God knows how evil is going to destroy his kids. God knows how evil steals from the life that God created us to live. So God sent his son into our world, go figure. The transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly holy, perfectly just God still loves us as broken as we are, as twisted as we are, as sinful as we are. He loved us so much that he stepped into our world, took on one of these bodies in order to break the chains of sin that are crushing us. And he's not done yet. Where is God when you're hurting? Where is God when a friend gets shot, a child gets bullied, a wife is cheated on, a friend is abandoned. Well, he knows how you feel because he's been here. He shares your pain and he gives you the strength to get through it if you lean in and trust him. And he promises that evil will never have the last word. Justice and grace. Perfect justice and exquisite grace. It's coming. Because God figured out how to pull both of those off through Jesus. And someday, someday, the Apostle John gives us a vision of what's coming. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the old heaven and the old earth have disappeared. And the sea is gone. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They'll be his people. And God himself will be with them. And he's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more evil, guys. All of those things, he says, will be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne says, look, I'm making everything new. Isn't that going to be cool? Let's pray. Father, I know that there are things that vex us. It's hard sometimes to live in a broken world when a lot of things are pushing back against you. Give us the wisdom, give us the courage to acknowledge who you are and the kind of God that you are. And help us have the courage and the conviction to stand tall as people of God a light to a world that desperately needs you. Thank you for what you've done to make it possible. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.
Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. Almighty fortress. that has been in our life. We know that you are the one that can handle the storms that we go through. Whether we call it darkness or evil or suffering or anything else, the things that are just in the antithesis of who you are, Father, we come before you and we know that you are the one that can handle anything. Your plan, Father, is perfect. Your plan is the one that we want to live every day of our life. And even when we don't understand it, Father, we come before you and say, we will worship you through it. We will sing through it. We will give you glory through it. We will give you all that we have. Because sometimes that's the only thing that we can give. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat for a second? We're about to go into a time of communion. And when we do communion today, it's a memorial service. It's a way for us to remember what Jesus Christ has done. And it is not something that I ever want to throw away, not a piece of the service that we just go, well, yeah, this is something that we do each week, so it's not as special. Today, maybe you make it more special than it's ever been because you're going to give this to God entirely. And you're going to be able to say, thank you so much for what Jesus Christ has done, the one who has won the battle in my life, the one who has won the battle in every other battle that I remember have to experience. Jesus Christ is the one that's going to give me what I need through them. You see, earlier on when we talked in Habakkuk that there was a complaint that we issue to God. We, we do it often. We hear ourselves do that over and over and over again. Just like at that point, the Lord gives an answer to us. And I want you to hear this answer that he gave to Habakkuk. Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your day. Not I will do something. I am doing something in your day. Something that you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. 
I have lived that over and over again. I'm like, I don't understand, God, what you're doing in the midst of this storm. I don't understand what you're doing in the midst of the darkness. And even Jesus, Jesus himself, right before his death on a cross, is like, if there's another way, if there is another way, and God says, there isn't. We're going to go through this, and I'm going to be there. And it is a perfect way that if you were to understand and know beyond what your human mind can comprehend, trust me, it's going to be amazing. And I want you to feel that as we go into our communion time today, that even despite what Jesus Christ as a man had to deal with, some of those things that he was having to, to kind of come to grips with, he went to God, and I want you to be able to go to God as well in the midst of your own darkness, in the midst of your own trials, in the midst of your own storms, and know that Jesus Christ will be there at every step of the way because he is good and he is amazing. When we celebrate this part of the service, what we do is we remember that he gave himself entirely and fully on a cross. His body was broken and his blood was shed. So we take bread to remember his body and we drink the juice to remember his blood. And it is a way for us to keep our minds centered on what Jesus Christ has done. If you call this place home and you want to give an offering, we also have these boxes at each of the stations that are around this room. And that's for people who want to give willingly and you don't have to, there's no, there's no responsibility that you have except for the ones that say, I love what Jesus Christ is doing in my life and I want to be able to give. And that is an act of worship that we will also take part in in just a few moments. We also do this thing called the generous bucket. You'll see the big old words on the top of it, the white buckets that are at each of the stations too. Anything beyond your typical offering that you want to give, we're going to give to people in need in this community. So go ahead and stand right now, and let's go ahead and go to the tables together.
Good morning, everyone. My name is Wendy, and I've got a couple of announcements to share with you this morning. First, as a parent of two young children, it's, these next two are super important. We've got some fundraisers coming up to help support our kids as they prepare for summer camp. I know it's been cold this week, but summer is coming, I promise. The first fundraiser is next Saturday night, February 12th. We will have a parents' night out from 6 to 9 p.m. Please bring your children. Uh, make sure you register them online ahead of time at Cap City Info. Drop them off. We will speed them. We will provide some activities for them, and we will give you a break for a couple of hours. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Exactly. Um, the second fundraiser we've got is also going to be happening next Sunday on February 13th. We will be having a spaghetti luncheon following both services. Please stop downstairs and grab your spaghetti lunch. You don't have to make lunch next Sunday for your family. You can grab it on your way out. You can eat in. You can uh, take it with you. And we're just taking donations for that to, again, help support our kids as we prepare for camp this summer. Next, we have a new growth group that's starting next Sunday, February 13th. It will be held in room 13 upstairs starting at 9.30 a.m. And the topic will be dealing with guilt. We encourage you to join us for that and then come to our second service at 11 a.m. Lastly, we have a marriage date night coming up. Woo! This is going to be Saturday, February 19th from 6 to 8.45 p.m., We've got a couple of great comedians, a Christian artist that will be joining us as well. And the tickets for those are $39 per couple. Please feel free to stop on your way out to the Connections Room, which is just out here on the left, my left, your right, as you leave. Um, and join John Sutphin out there to grab your tickets ahead of time. Shoo! These questions in Doc's sermon today, they were tough. And as a parent, I often wonder, how do I share and... and answer these types of questions for my own kids. And I think it's really important to keep it simple. So I want to leave you today with three simple things. Number one, God is not evil. He does not cause bad things to happen. Number two, if it bothers you, these bad things that happen, that's really evident of the God-like heart that you carry inside of you. And number three, not everyone carries a God-like heart at all times because God gives us the freedom to choose. So with that, if you're interested in learning more about carrying that godlike heart inside of you, please feel free again to stop through that Connections Room on your way out for our Getting Started class. That's today, right after this service. And ask all those hard questions to our leaders here at the church. They'll be happy to, to work with you in answering those. I hope you all have a wonderful week. And as you go out in the community, just remember to shine your godlike heart for all to see. Amen. set free now i walk in the victory that you won for me